Welcome to Make It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will have an inspiring guest tell their story of overcoming obstacles, never settling, and making it happen. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and review. So grab a coffee. Hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. So we are live. We're on episode number 18 of Making It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. You're very welcome along. I'll be your host today. And I'm delighted to say uh, our next guest is an author, a TEDx speaker. I actually was, I got to share a stage with him when I did my TEDx speak. And so we'll jump into that a bit into the podcast. But uh, John, John Doran, have I got the pronunciation right there, John? Spot on, John. Spot, spot on, on Tom. Okay, spot on. Is a guidance counselor um, and an author of Ways to Wellbeing, big in education and promoting uh, a program promoting re- resilience and positive mental health for students nationwide and internationally. So, John, welcome. It's delighted to join you here, Tom, on a, on a morning where the sun is shining. I know, and we're, we're, we're locked indoors, as they say, but we'll, we'll keep it positive with all this uh, COVID-19 talk. So, John, if I was to go back, um, where did education start for you or probably your passion to get into education? Well, I suppose passion is the key word, and the passion begins with another P, and that's patricians. I, I had the fortunate opportunity to go to a patrician secondary school in Newbridge, and they kind of lit the fire of, of education within me. And I naturally teach now where I went to school in the Patricians in Newbridge. So I suppose my passion for education came from my own school experience where I was surrounded by wonderful educators who loved what they did. And their whole raison d'etre was inspiring uh, the next generation. I suppose I've kept that torch alive. And it kind of is my philosophy for education is helping other young people. I, my, my, my favorite definition of education, Tom, is that it's a, it's a conversation between one generation and another about what's really important. And this COVID-19 has given us a chance to kind of separate out what's important from what's not important. To me, that's the essence of education. And John, was, it, was there a teacher that stood out to you or was there a lasting impression or the minute you get out of school, you're like, I need to, I want to get into this? Uh, great question, Tom. I, I suppose one of the things as an educator I'm aware of is that uh, when you look back about, upon your experience, uh, the teachers have made a difference, both good and bad. We always remember them. And I was very fortunate to have a number of great teachers, Brother Bosco, Brother John. I had uh, Brian Fahey and, and Frank O'Toole and, and, and a lot of teachers that really inspired me by their example, Tom, by their dedication, by their passion, um, and by their, I suppose, desire to make a difference. And that really enthused me and you know lit the flame for me and was it a simple transition did you just go to college and got a job straight away or tell us about that well I never had any master plan Tom I, 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 will, I would tell you a lie to say I had a kind of grand design to be a teacher from the get-go kind of something that kind of organically grew and I suppose it kind of mirrors my own pathway today really I never had a master plan I've kind of just serendipity and, 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 and kind of moving where I think I needed to be. So I did a BA in Maynooth University, very happy three years, and then decided to go into the teaching space. And um, pretty soon, I think you realize whether it's the right fit for you or not. And for me, it was. And I've stayed at the Coalface now for the last 26 years. And I'm, I'm delighted to say that I have the same enthusiasm um, and the same regard and respect for my I suppose, fellow educators and also for students that I always have had. And that kind of keeps me inspired on a daily basis. And I think it's a privilege to be in education in the times that we're facing into. And John, when you talk about education, um, 
just expand us on what a guidance counsellor does for any of the listeners. Well, I suppose a guidance counsellor kind of wears many hats, really. I mean, firstly, he's trying to help a young person navigate the myriad of choices that are there in terms of professions and in terms of employment, in terms of opportunities, in terms of, you know, it could be the vocational aspect, could be going to college, it could be going into the world of work. Or it could even be going on a gap year or, or an apprenticeship route or trying to help them make sense of that. And then there's also the personal space too. You know, it's a kind of a point of reference for a young person who may be going through some personal difficulties or, you know, you don't, uh, no young person leaves their problems at the door of a school, Tom, you know. And so we're teaching very much the person who happens to be a student rather than a student that happens to be a person. And so the guidance counsellor is a very important person there for a young person if he wants to come in and have a chat about life about careers just about how things are going so i think a guidance counselor in the school is a real key pivotal figure tom and and uh, it's great to see a kind of a re an enhanced respect for the role of the guidance counselor because it's never been more important within the school context and john i suppose just on that i was watching a program there recently um and I suppose my big question is, do we have enough support for kids or is there too many pupils in the schools or like what's the, is there a perfect number where you're going to get that balance? Well, the simple answer to that, Tom, is no. Um, there's not enough guidance counsellors. The guidance counsellors are stretched beyond the limits of their capacity. And um, we really need to put an enhanced and a, a, re, a re-emphasis on the mental health supports for young people, uh, not just within schools, but outside of schools as well. And uh, my, I suppose one of my concerns about the present crisis is that there's going to be uh, a huge issue with mental health at the end of this experience, Tom. You know, I talk sometimes about the weapons of mass distraction of social media and the dangers of living on a virtual world. And uh, my fear would be an awful lot of young people are going to have to be weaned off an existence now that's dedicated to the mobile phone, to the smartphone and to the laptop and the iPad. So transitioning back into the real world is going to be of concern for young people. So to answer your question, Tom, you know, we never needed more supports within the schools for guidance and uh, time really to do the job in the service of young people. Yeah, the main reason I asked that question is I got a bit of help when I was growing up because I'm dyslexic myself and I cherished a bit of the one-on-one time. When I had that time maybe outside the classroom when it wasn't full of other students, that's one thing I always remember and it probably helped me with education or just having a little bit of breathing space time to myself. John, when, when we talk about kids in the modern day and you're talking about social media there, there's positive and negatives to it all the time, but what would be like your overall opinion of it all, of social media? Well, can I go back to the first part of that, Tom, before answering the second part? You were so right. You, you put your finger on it. That one-on-one time, and that is my real concern, is that one-on-one time has been diminished quite severely over the last couple of years. That chance for a guidance counsellor to see a person one-on-one and, and connect to that person. And I sincerely hope, Tom, that more time would be given to the guidance counsellor in schools to get into that one-on-one time that's been really encroached upon. But to come back to your second point, Tom, you know, I, I sometimes feel that young people are, are are kind of the guinea pigs in a social experiment, perhaps the biggest one of the 20th, 21st century. You know, it's the first generation in the history of the world that's been born staring, swiping, scrolling at screens, Tom. And I, my concern would be in 20 years' time when we look back at this pivotal moment in history, will we see the effect of social media on the brain as the equivalent of smoking on the lungs? 
we really don't know what are the consequences of somebody being so immersed in a very seductive platform. I mean, Reed Hastings, the CEO of uh, Netflix, said our greatest enemy is not Apple, HBO or Amazon Prime. It's sleep and we're winning. So what is the cost of a young person who are, is, is involved in these kind of apps that are so seductive, that are based on comparing our unedited lives with the, with the edited and curated lives of the Kim Kardashians of the world? What effect does that have on continually being fed the message that you're not enough, that you're not smart enough or tall enough or pretty enough or not enough enough? That does concern me, Tom, for a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old person trying to navigate through the, 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 I suppose, the web that is social media. It's interesting you make a point in that, John. I, when I think of social media, I kind of, I have a love-hate relationship with it. I see so much noise going on out there and so much bullshit uh, on social media of likes and people, the more likes and more views and X, Y, and Z. And the way I put it when it comes down to business is you can't roll into a bank and go, I have 50,000 likes or followers, give us a mortgage. And that's why I think it's, it's, it, there's a lot of noise with it. But when it comes to, I suppose, teenagers and the teenagers you be seeing, is there a lot of pressure, John, on or noise or distractions from social media? Massively, Tom, massively. You know, it, there's, and, and that's the right word, is noise. You know, for a young person who's kind of trying to make their way in this world and they're comparing themselves against other people, the temptation is always to feel lesser than. I always say comparison is a thief of joy. I always say, too, it's better to, add, it's better to meet a friend than add a friend. You know, and that's not to diss or diminish going, yeah. or disregard social media, Tom, because it's not, that's a great thing. Just before we came on here, I've had the pleasure to speak to colleagues in Pakistan, in the Netherlands and Norway just this morning, which has been a real gift of connection. But I suppose my fear is that we have a kind of, you know, in a way we've never been more connected, Tom, but in another way, never more disconnected. We've got connections that are mile wide, but sometimes they can be an inch deep. And young people and also people in general we're hardwired for connection and there's nothing that makes, and can I say that Tom, that we have to physically distance ourselves for very real important reasons, but it doesn't mean that we can't emotionally connect. We actually need emotional proximity in, the, in these days. So trying to mitigate the more harmful elements of social media and trying to utilize the benefits of it is a really important conversation to have. And I would always urge parents, Tom, at the, t- at the table to be, you know, at the dinner table, Put away all screens. That's all of us. Put them in a bowl on the table. Don't allow screens to go to bedtime. And uh, the older you have that conversation with a young person, the more pushback you're going to get. And I often say to parents, you have to be a parent, not a parent. And um, it is an issue with social media, Tom, very much so. And in the present lockdown circumstances, the temptation to spend all of our time in a virtual world is a real concern for me. And John, I suppose on the, any of the listeners that are parents at home and maybe they've got kids or teenagers at home, would you have any tips for just being at the moment, being in a confined space or talking to each other? Well, I think you put the key word on it, Tom, talk. You know, opportunity is nowhere or opportunity is now here. This present circumstance provides us with a gift and that gift is to reconnect with our families. If I asked you, Tom, your top three values, I'm quite sure that family would and friends would kind of constitute up there in the hierarchy. But when you actually examine our lives, quite often what we say are important to us and actually how we live our lives can be very different. 
So let's connect, reconnect to our young people. Let your parents sit down at the family table, put away all the phones and just actually talk to each other. You know, we have a captive audience now with our young people not being able to go around actually to reconnect with them and communicate, communicate, communicate. I think this offers an amazing, unprecedented, perhaps never to be repeated opportunity for families to reconnect as families, to get out of our head and into our lives in a way we haven't done for many years. I see opportunities for communities to reconnect. I see an awful lot of kindness and compassion. I see a lot of people reaching out to people in a way, Tom, that we haven't in a, in, in, in a long time. And we've, we've wanted to. We've missed the sense of neighborliness and community. And I think this presents an opportunity to reconnect to the best of us. And John, just on that point of you working with kids and teaching and being a guidance counselor. So were you at a stage where you're like, great, I'm helping the people that are in front of me and that are coming to school and coming to classes. But you know what? There's something here where there's a book in me and I can get it out to more people. How did that process all come about? Well, I, I, I went through, kind of in, in my career, Tom, I was wondering, were we doing a service to young people? And I had an epiphany when I was doing the guidance course many years ago. And we had a principal and he said, why did I have to become a principal before anybody taught me or told me the importance of emotional intelligence? And it was like a light bulb that went off in my head, Tom. And then I started talking to employers and I started finding out what kind of people were the hiring, what kind of CVs stayed on their desk as opposed to going to the bin. And to a person, they all told, told me emotional intelligence. Now, what's the point of coming out of school with 625 points, Tom, and without the ability to talk to people, without the ability of forming a good relationship with yourself? And I came to the conclusion that we were spending too much academically in the left side of our brain. Um, that skills like emotional intelligence, why did they have to be accidentally caught on the playing fields or on the debating halls or, or on, the, on, the, on the stage rather than strategically taught? So I really of the mind that the skills that we needed for the 21st century were to strategically teach skills like emotional intelligence, stress management, the power of listening, that these were actually real important life skills. I mean, in 2020, Tom, the biggest killer in the Western world, according to the World Health Organization, is stress and stress-related disease. So if we let students out of school without understanding how their brains work, how to mitigate you know, the stress response, the fight or flight response, um, and to realize that the importance of relationships, I thought we were doing them at a service. And that's where the book emanated from, Tom. It's about relationships, the relationship we have with ourselves, fundamentally, and the relationship we have with other people. Really, if you're a human, you're in the relationship business, Tom. And John, I suppose if people are listening now and they think they've got a book in them, like what advice have you been on that journey with the book? It's been an amazing journey. I was very lucky when I wrote Ways to Wellbeing that I had an amazing publisher that kind of saw the vision, bought into the vision. And it's been a wonderful partnership. I would say this, you know, the, the secret of, of, of getting ahead, Mark Twain said, is getting started, Tom. And, uh, there's, and you mentioned we had a conversation briefly before this. There's no excuses now, Tom. Normally the excuse is time. Now you've got the time. Begin. Uh, there's, if you're waiting on inspiration, Tom, they hit you like a bolt of lightning. You'll still be waiting after this pandemic is finished. Begin. Get a piece of paper, get a pen and start writing and wait for inspiration to hit you then. And that's the biggest secret, I think, of writing a book is just get going. Get started. No more excuses. Start. 
And John, I, I know myself personally, we've had this conversation before. You've been getting some amazing feedback from the book and I think from kids and teenagers and parents. But how has the experience been of publishing the book? Like, what have you felt from it? Um, I have to say, I've been very, very, very fortunate, Tom. And again, I must give great credit to my publishers, you know, that they they just saw, they bought into the vision, they trusted me. And I think with that trust came great things. And, you know, when you're putting out a book within the teaching space and education space, teachers and students are incredibly discerning audience. And I was so, so relieved and moved with the way the book was received, Tom, that people were saying, you know what, this is what I've been waiting for, that there's something good on every page. And I was sort of, that was what my intention was, Tom, to try and create something where there could be a poem or a story or an exercise that would resonate, not just with the students, but with parents. Maybe they would take out the book at the kitchen table and go through an exercise about what makes us happy, what we're grateful for. And sometimes parents feel I can't help the student with maths or English or history, but they can always help their young person talking about life, about love, about loss. Um, no one is an expert in another person's life, Tom. So this is a kind of a, a, there's a reciprocal arrangement here that every young person has something to teach us. Every person you encounter has something to teach you. And I think coming to, to life, to my book, with that kind of attitude, Tom, makes every kind of potential uh, encounter a learning experience, a growth opportunity. And John, how do you, when you're, when school's going and you're pushing the book and you're working now with companies and you're speaking always on the go, do you find it difficult to find balance? Well, I would always say to somebody, Tom, you know, I, I'm very lucky. I mean, you, you, we all have 86,400 seconds in a day. Now, if you let that, you can either let that run you or you can run time. It's, I'm very conscious of time and, you know, who I spend even my time with who gives me energy, who takes away from my energy. And I would always, my, always, when a young person comes to me at 17 and says, oh, Sarah, I'm really worried and stressed out. I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. I always say, look, at, um, I'm still looking for ideas myself. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Don't stress about it. The chances is, is if I meet a student in 10 years' time, he's going to be working at a job that hasn't been invented yet, Tom. So work harder on yourself than you do on your job. But one thing I would say is find your passion. Find what you love to do. And it is true, that old cliche, if you find out or do something that you love to do, you won't work a day in your life. I don't consider what I do work. People sometimes say, how do you fit so much in? But speaking to you, Tom, about, about relationships, about emotional intelligence, about young people, about education, that's my passion. This is not work for me. This is something that I live and breathe. And I think be authentic and true to yourself. And I think uh, people can see that straight away, Tom. If you're practicing what you're preaching, if you're walking your talk, I think that comes across. And John, if any of the listeners are listening now and maybe they're at the roll in their eyes that here's another guy going, follow your passion and stuff like that. And that's easy for John to do. He's published a book. He's done a TED Talk, X, Y, and Z. If you were giving advice to someone who's maybe in a position that they don't want to be in and they're trying to find their drive, what advice would you give? Great question, Tom. Reach out. I think we, if I said to you, Tom, that you had a superpower and um, that you didn't exercise it, you would consider yourself rather silly. But I think we all have a superpower, whatever age. And that superpower is the ability to ask for help, to reach out to people. I don't, whatever profession you can think about, there's somebody out there, Tom, that can help you along the way. People are very willing to help you if you ask them. 
you know, LinkedIn, get on, jump onto LinkedIn, find a platform. I mean, I had a wonderful conversation last week with Howard Behar, one of the most inspiring presidents of Starbucks, the company that took it worldwide. And we had an amazing conversation. I just reached out to me, saw my TED talk. We had an amazing conversation. And from that, I would say, Tom, it's one of the great secrets of my success, reaching out to people. There's power in reaching out, reaching up and reaching in. So ask for help. There's somebody in that domain you've always wanted to be in that can give you a helping hand. In my book, I always say you can learn an awful lot from the successful lives of other people. And I have a kind of a, a broader definition of success than just pure monetary reward, Tom. I, I, I like the definition by John Wooden of success, that it's a peace of mind that comes from knowing I've done the best I can with the ability I've got in the time that I've had. And I think that peace of mind, Tom, that says, you know what, I'm doing something. You know, one of my heroes is the caretaker in my school, George. You, you know, um, George comes with a smile on his face every day. He's been in that school for 26 years that I've been there. And he's helped more people in the town of Newbridge than you can shake a stick at. And George loves what he does with his colleague, Robbie. And uh, that to me, I think George is one of the most successful people I know, Tom. So I think uh, I have a wider definition of what success is. And I, I would encourage other people to kind of share it. You know, find out what you love to do, your interests, your passions. And uh, you'll be working a long time, Tom. Might as well make it enjoyable. Absolutely. And John, I suppose when you're dealing with students, um, are they chasing success or are they a bit lost or is every case different? Well, Tom, I, mean, I have the height of regard and respect. Young, we sometimes denigrate young people, but I love the, you know, young people have an amazing uh, social conscience. Young people have amazing enthusiasm and a desire to get on. But we live in an instant world, Tom, a kind of a world that kind of preaches instant gratification, instant success, instant coffee, X factor, you know? And I think we have to remember patience. We've got to mention determination. We only see the highlight reels of successful people. If somebody, you mentioned the book, Tom, people often ask me, how long did it take you to write it? It took me a year to write it, Tom, but it took me 26 years to research it. <laughs> you know, it was a long, laborious effort. I can't type, Tom, so it was a one-finger job on an iPad. The amount of time it took was incalculable. So there's a gestation period for success, Tom. There's an incubation period. And also, we got to understand the importance of failure. You only see, you know, so it's you're going to fall down, but you're going to get back up again. Think of a child when you're learning how to walk. He, do, he falls down, he doesn't say, right, that's it. I'm not going to try to get it walking again. You know that patience, determination, positive attitude, all of these are key ingredients to success. Um, and no one's going to make it happen for you, Tom. You've got to be in the middle of it. You've got to make things happen. You've got to get a reach. You've got to meet success halfway. You've got to get out of, you have to get off the sofa and actually get out there. And, and get your side hustle going on or your main hustle going on. You've got to get out there and reach out. 100%. Um, there's huge uh, takeaways in that for me personally. I was literally watching um, a movie last night called Saving Mr. Banks. And it's about Walt Disney and the uh, Mary Poppins story. But then one of my favorite stories about Walt Disney is he was uh, rejected from the bank 302 times. Yeah. And just what you said there, it's having that resilience to get back up and going. I think of us personally connecting at, at our TED talk and I was rejected 17 times. Wow. And a lot of people don't realize that, but as you made the point there, they see the highlight reel. reel. Oh, geez, that yeah. must have been easy for Tom. He must have just got up there and just did that. They don't see the work that went into it. So 
I suppose I'm, I'm thinking of the listener. Uh, I'm probably going on a bit of a tangent or rant there about resilience, John. But I'm thinking of the listener that has a teenage son or daughter at home and is trying to build up a bit of resilience. Is there any advice you'd give there, John, that direction? Yeah, I've, great point, Tom. I would say, firstly, to believe in yourself. You know, belief in yourself costs nothing and all of us can afford it. You know, to understand that we all have this kind of voice of negativity inside all of us. Every teacher, every parent, every young person has it. Again, coronavirus being the great leveler, we're all in the same boat. But we're all in the same boat in terms of our brain. We have this little voice of negativity that creeps up and says, you're not good enough. You're not going to be able to do this. Who do you think you are to be able to do that? I think to, to, to lower that voice, to dial, you can't eliminate it, Tom, but you can dial it down. You can dial it down and you can choose not to listen to it. You can actually choose to play, put your focus where you can be nourished and enriched and energized. You can choose to listen to your inner coach and to dial down the inner critic. And that is the one single thing that I would say to young people. You don't have to believe everything you think. Thoughts aren't facts. So, you know, let the thoughts come, but let them go. It's the attachment to the negative thoughts, Tom, that create the kind of erosion of our resilience. Resilience is bounce back ability. We all have the ability to get back up again. We all make mistakes. And you know what, Tom, you know, we all have the we, we all get involved in this kind of trance of unworthiness, you know, and making the conscious decision right here, right now, to be on good terms with yourself. You know, say, I'm a pretty good student. I'm a pretty good son. I'm a pretty good person. I think that's the starting point for your resilience. We all have that resilience, Tom. We've all failed. We've all made mistakes. But to have a different relationship with your mistakes, to look at them from a different place, to see mistakes as vile, very interesting learning experiences, to see failure not as a kind of a destination, but a kind of a process, as a kind of a, a growth opportunity. Take, take the positives from it, take the lessons from it, not the guilt, and move on. You know, the person who never made a mistake, Tom, well, he never made much. I've made many mistakes in my life. And I think, you know, nothing is wasted if you learn from it, Tom. And that's an attitude. That's a mindset, that's a disposition, and that's the key to resilience. And John, when I hear you um, pushing the book, pushing the TED Talk, um, like what's next? What's next for you? Um, you mentioned Walt Disney, uh, Tom, and there's a story about Walt, I don't know that you know. When he, when he died, his wife Lillian was opening up Disneyland. He didn't get a chance, and, and a person came up and said, a friend, a close friend of Walt's, uh, sometime after the funeral, put her, his arm, a consoling arm around her shoulder and said, isn't it an awful pity that Walt didn't see this? And Lillian said, what do you mean? He did see it. He saw it in his mind. He'd imagined it. And Walt Disney came up with the, with the phrase imagineering. Everything is created twice, first in your mind and then in reality. And this present circumstance gave me a chance to kind of go back to the well, Tom, to reimagine where I'm going in, 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 in the future. And I think my future is, it is very much about what I've been doing, helping people in the world of education, in the world of business, to reconnect to themselves, to kind of separate out what's important from what's not important. And I think that's where my work is increasingly taking me towards, helping people within the education space and in the world to kind of reconnect. And probably going further afield, I've been doing a lot of work now internationally and had the wonderful opportunity last year to go to Sydney, Australia, and working with schools and people over there. So I think I'll be doing more of that Tom and, and, and continuing to evolve and grow as a person and also seeing my work hopefully reaching more and more people. Absolutely brilliant. Um, John, when you've given a lot of um, what I would say 
nuggets, great quotes. And I'm actually making notes here, as you, as you say, a couple of them. And I love that one. Uh, be- uh, self-belief costs nothing. Um, or believing in yourself costs nothing. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Um, I ask people this question, Tom. I've asked cooks, cleaners, caretakers, and celebrities. What's one thing that life has taught you that would have saved you a lot of hassle to have known when you were younger? And I've had wonderful nuggets, as you mentioned, from lots of people. One stands out in my mind. When you're worried about what people are thinking about you, and it consumes a lot of us, always worrying about what people are thinking of us. If I do this, what do people think? And particularly when we're younger, reputation management is paramount. You know, we're, we're very, very concerned how other people will view us and, and, and see us. And somebody said to me, when you're worried about what people are thinking about you, don't worry. They're not thinking about you. And I think that was profound advice. And I think when I was younger, you know, how many times did I stop writing a book? Because I made me say to myself, oh, what would people think of, you know, this guy writing a book? What's, he, what's his expertise? How, what, what, who does he think he is? Don't let your fear of what other people think about you pull you back. And the other piece of advice, Tom, if you'll allow me the indulgence of giving you a second one, was when I reached out and, and the head psychologist to the New Zealand All Blacks team, he sent me a one-word answer to that question that I posed you. He said, where your attention goes, your energy flows. And that really rocked me back. Where are you putting your attention, Tom, in the present times? Are you putting your attention on feeding your fears? Or are you putting your attention to feeding all of the dreams that you have, to the connections that you have, to the relationships you have with other people and yourself? Where your attention goes, your energy flows. You know you're about as happy as you, as you make up your mind to be. So the secret to it is paying more attention to what makes you happy and less attention to what doesn't. Where's your attention? Yeah, it's, it's, that's a brilliant Another one I'm at to, taking note of there. Um, and John, just before we sum up here, you're after doing a lot of um, mentioning about self-talk. Um, is there any practices you learned yourself or daily habits you use to just put you in the right frame of mind if your mind starts lapsing? Yeah, I do a piece I talk about that you're enough. I mean, I had the great pleasure of, of, of meeting one of my heroes, brother Colin O'Connell, the patrician brother. And we talked about, you know, the great trainer of David Radisha. And um, I'd leave you with this one. Howard Behar, the president of Starbucks, when we, we, we talked last week, and he was very kindly talking about the, the TED Talk, which you can find if you John, plus Google John Dorn plus TED Talk. But he said he's been saying this mantra, this affirmation to himself for 50 years. I am enough, I have enough, I do enough. And I say that to myself every day, Tom. I have enough, I am enough, I do enough. And you know what? We are enough, we have enough, and we do enough. Yeah, that's amazing, amazing, very powerful. And John, I suppose a lot of listeners would be maybe into self-development or any tips or tricks, whether it be a book or a podcast or a movie. Would you have any recommendations, maybe that's in your library or you'd recommend to any listeners? Well, uh, firstly, if, if, if I put up little, little bits of nuggets on my own Twitter and Instagram, a way to well-being, Tom. But I, I'm always reading. I, I, I'm, I'm a passionate reader. I love. Go, I, I often go back to Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Tom. There's so many gifts there in terms of how we operate, of what paradigm we're operating from, the importance of sharpening the saw, 
you know, taking a bit of time to, 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 to find out where we're going in our life. I think that's a very important concept and the concept of active listening. So I probably, the touchstone for me would be Stephen Covey's work in the seven habits of highly effective people. Uh, it's a kind of timeless wisdom um, that's been gathered over the ages, Tom, that doesn't actually have a sell by date. Yeah, absolutely. And John, you, I know you mentioned your book, obviously. How can people find you and stay in contact with yourself? Well, thank you, Tom, for this opportunity. Well, the book is Ways to Wellbeing. If you go online, you should see it. And I do a bit of training in, in the book as well. And the TED Talk is there, John Doan plus TED Talk. Um, if you Google that, and on Instagram, on Twitter, A Way to Wellbeing. And I post up pretty much every day. And hopefully it's a blessing to people in the times that we face because uh, we've never needed community and a bit of inspiration and more than now tom and, and thank you for what you're doing and spreading wisdom and giving a platform for people to kind of hopefully help people through tough times absolutely i appreciate it and listen i can't i saw your ted talk in the flesh and to say i had family members there and it blew me away your ted talks there's huge value in it so i do i say to any listeners as i say give it a google find it there give it a watch reach out to john um amazing guy like we're only at the talking there for a little over half an hour but some of the nuggets he's at the given so listen john all i can say is i appreciate your time it's an absolute pleasure talking to you and i'm glad to say you're one of my friends go well tom and positively thanks so much john thank you tom